Our reading today is from the Gospel according to St. John, verses 20 and 21. Not all of it you'll be glad to hear. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the Gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, may the words that flow from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have reached the end of John's Gospel, well, the series that we are having on John's Gospel. You can pick up John's Gospel anytime uh, you like. But uh, since the beginning of Lent, um, Graham Leo has been providing a daily reflection uh, which has immersed us in the whole book the Gospel of John, and our sermons and our reflection questions and Bible study questions have, have honed us in, particularly on the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And all of those resources are still available on our website, so if you've missed parts of it or all of it, there's no right or wrong time uh, to, uh, as I said, to get into John's Gospel. Um, hopefully that can be a gift uh, to to others as they uh, explore John's gospel. But now that we're at the end, um, I've cobbled together a couple of verses from the end of chapter 21 and the end of chapter 20, missing a whole lot of really interesting stuff, like Jesus having fish for breakfast on the beach, the powerful interaction between Jesus and Peter where Jesus instructs Peter to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. And the slightly weird bit at the end of John's Gospel, which is somewhat confusing about this rumour that seems to be circulating that John puts right, that some people think that he's going to be immortal and not die. So even though I really wanted to preach on that part, I... I have to say that was a little bit beyond me as well. Uh, but what really, really interested me as I thought about it was that the Gospel of John is actually a book with two endings. Now, I could uh, spend time regaling you about the nitty-gritty of how most modern scho uh, scholars suggest that the and that chapter 21 is a later edition by either John or another author, whereas the scholars in the first 18 centuries held that the end of chapter 20 was the ending of the resurrection narratives and the end of chapter 21 was the end of the whole gospel. But I'm not going to do that. What if we looked at those endings together as Anne read them for us? What can we take with us as we leave John's Gospel. 
I should say, though, that in biblical writings, beginnings and endings matter way less than what's actually in the middle. But beginnings and endings do matter. And I think John is incredibly purposeful in both his beginning and endings. The first thing that I notice is that John's gospel is not the whole story. He writes at the end of chapter 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. And goes on at the end of chapter 21, But there were also many other things that Jesus did. Does this matter? In my humble opinion, no. I know that there are critics of Scripture who point to the inconsistencies across the four Gospels, and John is the most different of the four. But maybe try and think of it this way. When Leanne asks me how my day was, I don't start by saying, after you left for the train, I watched sunrise for a little bit longer, then I jumped in the shower, and then after I got out of the shower, I looked at my wardrobe, and I, I, I had to decide what I was going to wear, what shoes, what watch, what, how it all matched, and then I decided to get my point. Sometimes in the retelling of what the important things in my day were, I'll get them out of order. And maybe telling one aspect of my day will remind me about something else that happened. It doesn't mean that those things aren't true or not reliable. Leanne will trust what I say because we love each other and there is relational credibility between us. Last week, I was privileged to conduct two funerals on the same day for two of the saints of our church who passed away in their 90s. And if you might be a bit bleary-eyed this morning, you might have been up watching another funeral for somebody who died in their 90s, Prince Philip. One of the questions that sometimes get asked, but, but sometimes I try and encourage people to think about, is what to put in a eulogy. I've always believed that a good eulogy doesn't give an absolute, complete, chronological account of a person's life, but rather highlights the moments that was special to the person sharing the stories. I, as a minister sitting up here in the sanctuary, have the privilege of looking out onto the members of the congregation and the funeral. And it's almost like you see light bulbs go off in their minds and their eyes light up as they're remembering their experiences, which might be completely different to the experiences that the person is sharing in their eulogy. They find something that is special to them. That's a good eulogy. You find that the longer a eulogy goes, the more it becomes about the person giving the eulogy. As a deterrent for long eulogies, I give an example of a funeral that I did in Newcastle for a lady who also died in her 90s. And her older brother gave the eulogy. After 35 minutes, she was still 19 in the story. <laughs> he finished at about 55 minutes, and we'd heard all about his life and hardly anything about her. 
John is a master of allowing his audience to capture their own special moment. Any one of the moments that he retells or the signs that Jesus does in and of themselves are enough for somebody to go, wow, that's amazing, I believe. And throughout the gospel, John refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. And I don't think this is setting John apart from the other disciples or apart from us either. What he's showing us is the depth of Jesus' impact in his life without drawing attention to himself. He leaves it right to the end when he says, well, this is the person who's telling you about this. That's me. And that's the second thing that I notice about John's endings. It's not about name-dropping. It's not about showing, well, I've had all these experiences. How wonderful am I? This is why John writes his gospel. So that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. For our benefit, so that we might experience something like what he has experienced. For us to clearly see who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God, what Jesus did, all those signs and wonders, the teaching, but especially his death and his resurrection. And lastly, what Jesus wants. For you and for me to have life in him. Let's just pause for a moment and consider. Are our motivations for the benefit of making Jesus known for others? One of the biggest single issues that Christians have is the expectation that what they have seen or experienced should be exactly replicated by others. Faith in Jesus makes us passionate. That's great. But I couldn't begin to imagine how many examples I could give you of times in the life of the church where there have been issues and conflicts when it all boils down to a simple reality that people get upset because others are not as passionate as they are about something nowhere near as important as Jesus. A retired priest uh, who I admire very much um, told me this story um, some years ago about a church I may or may not have been a part of. He was in a quite conflicted church meeting and at the end of all the discussion, he just calmly said, I don't think anything we've just discussed will bring anybody any closer to Jesus. I'm waiting for the moment that I'm brave enough to be able to use that statement. And I might have to wait until I'm retired, though, I think. Oh, how I wish that we could be more like John. And while sharing the moments that have made us passionate, we give space for other people 
to encounter Jesus in their own way, for themselves, and then develop their own passion, which might be different to ours. It might be like ours, but it might be different. And then we can all rejoice together that we are a collective of passionate people expressing that passion in a kaleidoscope of ways, held together by a shared passion that Jesus matters most. The third thing that I noticed about these endings is that John was believed. And he knew it. He writes, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. Why do we know that what John is saying is true? Well, firstly, I think it's somewhat similar to the same way that Leanne will believe what I tell her about my day. is because John has developed relational credibility. And it's not just because he was an eyewitness. Luke was not an eyewitness, and his gospel has relational credibility as well. But throughout the gospel of John, we can see John's motivation is not for himself to be noticed, but it is for others to see Jesus. And the first hearers of his words would have also have known a bit of John's story. They might have actually known him personally, at least have heard of this amazing apostle John. They will have seen what or heard what impact a relationship with Jesus had had on his life. They would have seen an authenticity in how he prioritised the importance of others believing in Jesus. So let's pause again. Can we say that people will believe what we say about Jesus because of the relationship that they have with us? That's hard, isn't it? It's a big one. Because I'm sure every single person in this building watching now or later has a number of people in their lives who have decided that they do not believe what we believe about Jesus. And that really started to unsettle me. But I wonder whether it's in part because we have the understanding of the word believe all wrong. So we've got one last Greek word for our series on John's Gospel, and it's this word, pistio, which is translated as believe. We've equated belief in our modern world with truth, with right or wrong. I do like to stay in touch with the phrases that young people are using, in part so I can continue to embarrass my children, but also I just want to understand that I can talk the language of those who are speaking around me. And I have to admit that one of the phrases that I really don't like at the moment is somebody saying something like, speak your truth. Because it really isn't usually truth at all. It's often just opinion. With 
very little to no substantiation. Often it also means that I think I'm right and if you don't agree, you're wrong. But belief isn't truth, right or wrong. Belief actually isn't universal. Not everyone believed in John and what John had to say about Jesus. But some did. And it's the sum that matters. Belief also gets equated with memory or experience or both. But the older that I get, the more I know I can't rely on my memory. It's something that Leanne's been telling me for a very long time. And experience can be subjective. Researchers have actually proven that we can't always rely on our memories to reveal exactly what happens because over time they get coloured by other people's stories about the same experiences, by our own insight and development, by our own preferences, by other experiences and other memories. Belief also gets equated with intellectual assent. I believe it because I know it, and I know it because I believe it. Since the Enlightenment, sceptics have been tearing down this flimsy perspective of belief. But if we go back to the Greek word and what it meant in their world, it meant to trust and entrust to another person. One of the things that I realised is that you can't make people trust you. It's a relational intangible. You either do or you don't or you kind of sort of. It can take time, it can be gained and it can be lost. And this is why John's ending is so carefully crafted because he says that belief in Jesus is complete when it produces life and life in him. John uses the word life 36 times throughout his gospel. There's really no point in looking at the original Greek word life because the word life in Greek literally and metaphorically just means life. But I want us to pause again for a final time. Where else other than Jesus do we look for life? And I'm not necessarily talking about those negative experiences that we point to usually like sex, drugs, power and money. Although they are often places where people seek life. But what about things like family? Good health, employment, economic and political stability, great weather. Think about it for a moment. Hasn't the last 12 months shown, shown us that all of these things, even as altruistic as they can be, are not solid foundations to build our complete trust on? If you've been in extended lockdown homeschooling children, you might have had too much family in the last 12 months. And we can no longer count 
on family actually being physically present for the important moments of our lives. Good health, which we take for granted, is more fragile than ever. Jobs are less secure. Economic and political stability around the world seems much more vulnerable. We've found our climate can sometimes harm us. All the world's idols have all collapsed all at once. We need now more than ever to be people who actually live like we have life and that life is because that we believe and that we trust and we have entrusted our lives to Jesus. Tradition holds that John, St. John the Apostle, lived a very long life. There's speculation about how he died. But it seems clear that his life was by no means easy and marked with great suffering. He was banished. Tradition also holds that he trained and influenced some of the most influential early bishops of the church continuing to prioritise the mission that was entrusted to him, that others might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing that they may have life in his name. So how are we going to treat these two endings? Do we just write them off as some sort of Biblical, literal oddity that may or may not or should or shouldn't be there? Or do we see these endings as a challenge to transform our lives or to transform our lives anew so that we also may share in John's mission that through the witness of our lives, through the life in Jesus that people see in us, that others might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, they may have life in his name. It's that simple. You don't need a theology degree. You don't need to stand on a street corner in the middle of the town centre telling everybody that you need to be in church next Sunday. You don't need to confront people all the time. You just have to live like you've got life in Jesus. And people notice. Not everybody will believe and trust what you believe and trust. But some will. And it's the some that matter most. Because we're all one of those some. Haven't we had someone in our lives that has been that for us. So how then shall we live? What life will those who look upon us see? I pray that they see Jesus and only Jesus. Amen.